All right, well, it's New Series Sunday. We get to kick this off. Uh, and, and so here's my question as we kick off this series, because I, I, you, you're going to think that I'm like joking, and I'm not joking. It's a real question. Uh, do you believe Satan exists? Okay, well, that was far more emphatic than 8.30. Much more. Okay, awesome. But no, I I asked that question, and I I don't mean that facetiously. I mean that I think sometimes I really wonder if we think that he is real. And the reason I think I wonder if he's real is because we would desire or deeply move or with the need of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, more so if we understood the depth of how real Satan is. So as you process that, I will tell you this. Research tells us that the 21st century has been hard on God. Faith in the divine and organized religion is facing unrelenting decline. It's not doing much better. Losing faith in God seems to be accompanied by a disbelief in the devil. According to a new Gallup poll, they found that more than half of Americans believe it exists, down from over two-thirds in 2001. About the same percentage said they believe in hell, down from 71% decades ago. Do you believe in Satan? I will tell you this story. Two six-year-olds talking about the existence of life, because that's what every six-year-old talks about, right? And they're having this debate about Satan. And the one six-year-old says, Satan's not real. And the other is frustrated. He's visibly shaking. He's like, yes, he is. And he's getting really indignant. He's like, Satan is all throughout scripture. And the other six-year-old looks at him and says, no, no, listen, Satan is just like Santa Claus. In the end, it turns out to be your dad. I love his quote from The Usual Suspects. It says this, nobody believed he was real. That was his power. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And I do believe that as a tactic of the enemy. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in a six. I'm kicking off this series, The Devils in the Detail, and we're going to be unpacking who our enemy is. And over the next month, we're going to look at ways to develop a plan of attack, a plan of defense, and a plan of, of just understanding of who our enemy is so that we can be better on guard. And so today I'm going to give you a very macro level about who God, who Satan is. And hopefully that inside that it wells up who God is and how much more we are dependent on the Holy Spirit and how much more grateful we are for Jesus and what he did on the cross. Amen. All right. So here's what I will tell you. The Bible is not ambiguous on the reality of Satan. He's there in the beginning tempting Eve. He's there in the middle in First Chronicles, inciting David to take a faithless census. He's there in the end in Revelation when he's hurled from heaven along with his fellow rebels to the earth. There's an enormous amount of biblical material on Satan and demons, leaving no doubt in scripture that he is real. So whether you know, I will tell you, you know who does believe in Satan? Jesus. Jesus does. Jesus spent three years walking this earth 33 in total, but three years imparting his knowledge about the kingdom that he was trying to bring. And what does he say? Jesus certainly thought Satan was real. He referred to five times and had a personal encounter with him in Matthew 4. You should read that. What I can tell you of all his teachings in his three years of ministry is 25% of them were uh, of Jesus' actions, parables, and miracles had to do with demons and the evil one. Why? 
because he's real. And so today we're going to look at who our enemy is, and I have four things for you, and we're going to hopefully walk out of here better equipped, and hopefully you're excited, and then in the coming weeks we're going to break down specific tactics of the enemy, because here's the deal, uh, Satan is not a creator. I'll say this really quick, kind of a free piece of advice, see, Jesus and God, they're creators, and in fact, God, when he created man, he breathed his breath, and we became the only thing that's fully physical and fully spiritual, and we were asked to become co-creators with him. You know who was not asked to co-create with God? Satan. That means that he cannot do anything original. He takes our fears, our failures, our weaknesses, our insecurities, and he uses them to create traps with his deceit, because he's a deceiver, an accuser, and a destroyer of all that is good to trip us up. So let's unpack everything we can about him. Here's number one. We are involved in an invisible world with an invisible war. I'm going to say that again, because some people think I'm crazy. We're involved in an invisible world with an invisible war. In the letter to the early church, Paul in the, said this to the church in Corinth. He said, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not wait flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In a spiritual battle. Now, I want to pause there, and I just want to keep this as practical as possible. I just, I, I'm, I'm going to apologize up front. I do not mean to offend you. I do not mean to be funny. But I want to say this, and I need you to hear this. Yes, we are a part of an unseen world, at war. What I want you to be careful about is some of the situations you're in are from your own stupid choices. I, I hope you hear me. I, I, nothing is worse than a person who is make wise choices, who is now living in the consequences of their choices, declaring that they are under spiritual attack. No, you are under attack from your own stupid choices. And, I, and, and why that matters is, is because I think too often we excuse our stupidity and blame it on the devil, and really making horrible choices and blaming God and the devil for them. And I just need you to understand: yes, you are part of a war. And yes, you are under attack. But here's how you know when your attack is serious and it's real. See, when you are behaving like a, a follower of Christ, God with you, all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, when you are loving your neighbors yourself, when you are pouring out your life as he has asked, when you are operating in your gifts, when you are a part and submitted to a church, and you are part of a force advancing kingdom, and yet still the oppression the enemy is attacking, I got to sound the alarm, and I need to act with my church and with my friends because the enemy is after me. The worst time to go after the enemy is when you made poor choices, you weren't in the word, you weren't making sound choices, you weren't doing what you needed to do, and now you're suffering the consequences and you're screaming, woe is me. Okay? 
That's number one. Let's go to number two. Our foe is formidable. Who is our foe? He is the devil. Now here's the deal. There's a lot of myths that are not true. I'm just going to give you an example and I really need you to participate in this. Please raise your hand. If you at some point were taught in Sunday school or at your church, the devil is a choir leader and he is in charge of music. Would you just raise your hand? More of you need to raise your hand, okay? That's a lie from the enemy. Here's what I will tell you. Here's the myth. Uh, he's not red. He doesn't have horns. He's not a choir director and he isn't good at music. Okay, so if he's not those things, what is he? Well, I'm glad you asked. So let me explain who the enemy is according to scripture. Here's what we know first and foremost. He was created by God. We learned that in Ezekiel 28. This is the key. He is not God's equal and he's not God's opposite, but he's a created being with a beginning. Amen. Number two, his original role seems to have been spiritual formation of human beings through testing. We see this in Job and we see this in Matthew 4. Think of how a teacher tests children to bring them to maturity. But as we see in the story in Job, he began to drift from his charter and he used his skill to tempt human beings into spiritual formation because he wanted to be God. He didn't want to submit to God. We know that he had a place of prominence. He sat on God's divine counsel. He was a group, he was a part of a group of hand-selected spiritual beings whose job was to collaborate with God's rule over the world. We see this in Genesis 3, Isaiah 12. Uh, Luke 10 and Revelations 12. But he chose to rebel against God's rule to seize the world as his throne for himself and to list as many creatures as possible in his violent insurgency. Some scholars argue that Eden was created in a war zone and it was the beach. But when humans later joined in the devil's rebellion, the earth fell under his dominion. Now, here's why that matters. And here's, here's where I'm just going to invite you into a bigger picture of the world. See, we, we, we like what we've heard so far. We're, we're nodding our heads. But I think we forget this last part. World is his dominion. It's his dominion. It means that God turned the world over to the enemy. And he said, hey, I'm going to come back and I'm going to right every wrong. But in the meantime, I'm preparing a place. And if you need me, you call on me and I'll be there. So we are in of darkness's world. Now, here's what else I'll tell you. I love this. In Genesis 3, we learn about how God created man and woman. He, we learn that he said, hey, you can eat of this tree and all of these other things, but don't touch this tree. And we know that there was a serpent. Here's what's interesting about that serpent. Was it one of God's created things? Well, yeah, of the creation efforts. I actually think it was a fallen angel. Here's what leads me to believe this. If you look at scripture and you define in scripture using the definitions and imagery that scripture presents of what a cherubim is and what a seraphim is, you learn something fascinating about a seraphim. A seraphim is like creature with wings. It is also makes perfect sense that the seraphim was actually a fallen angel that tempted Eve because when God ruled out or gave his punishments at the end of Genesis 3, what does he declare over the serpent? He says, cursed are you to the ground. He took his and he says, cursed are you to this earthly dominion where you will rule until I come back again. Eden was created in the midst of a war zone. In the midst of that war zone, for a thousand years, he has held sway as the prince of this world. We know that in John 14. 
and 1 John 5. And his goal is to lead vast swaths of humans and non-human creatures in their ongoing quest to seize autonomy from God and redefine good and evil as they see fit. But here's the hope. Jesus came to destroy the devil's work, to bind the strong man and to set humanity free. Three, Mark 3, John 8. He did this first through his defeat of the devil in the desert, then through his teaching, his exorcisms, and finally through the death and resurrection and exaltation in which he disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle, triumphing over the evil one. Cross. We should celebrate that. That's good news, right? But we're not done. Jesus' victory over the devil was like D-Day to World War II for you history people. It was the decisive battle that marked the beginning of the war's end. The devil's fate was sealed on the first Easter. In the interim, the devil's like a wounded animal, a dying dragon, more dangerous than ever. And contrary to popular artistic imagining, the devil is not in hell. He's here on earth. If Jesus' anthem is on earth as it is in hell, is on earth as it is in hell. On earth as it is in hell. In this ongoing war, spiritual, mental, emotional, and even physical harm is possible. Followers of Jesus are not immune. Church, followers of Jesus are not immune. We bleed red, we suffer and die along with the rest of humanity. We're vulnerable to temptation and deceit, though we know how the story ends. And that is why in 1 Peter 5, we're warned to stay alert, to be of sober mind, around us like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And I will end with this. Our great hope is in Jesus' return to finish what he started. On that day, the devil and his kind will be thrown to the lake of fire and all evil will be eradicated from God's creation. And we will then take as co-rulers with Jesus, the king, over his beautiful world. Amen. Amen. In the meantime, what we're left with is this simple fact. It's not a myth. It's not a figment of our overactive imagination. It's a hangover from a pre-scientific age. It is definitely not a red cartoon character on your shoulder or Will Ferrell on Saturday night shredding out B-level death metal. Though funny, the devil is not immaterial, but real intelligence at work and in the world with more power than any other creature in the universe. So what does that mean? Number three, we must respect our foe, but not fear him. We have to respect him, but not fear him. That's why we're doing this series. To respect him, to learn about him, to figure out his tactics because he is not new. He doesn't have more tricks up his sleeve. He's been doing the same play since the day he started and he will do the same play till the day that he's defeated. But here's the crazy part. If we know it, we can defend ourselves. We can, we can do things that scripture tells us resist the devil and he will flee from us. Our responsibility is to become acutely aware of Satan's methods, but to not be preoccupied by them. We can be educated about his schemes. We can learn what his names in scripture mean. All of them reveal 
But scripture is very clear about his agenda and his targets, but he is limited and we have no need to fear him because God's instruction is faith over fear. James says it this way. He was the stepbrother of Jesus. He tells this to the early church. Humble yourselves before God. Resist. And look what happens. He will flee from you. If you come close to God, our God is going to come close to you. And that's what we cling to. So let me lay in the plane with this. Number four, we do not fight for victory. Church, your job victory. Now I know some of you are like, wait, wait, pastor, I don't think you said that right. No, it's on the screen. It's right. We do not fight for victory. And many of us, we think we're in a war for victory. No, no, we're not. We're not. But here's what we are. Uh, we fight from victory. Come on, church. We fight from victory. We do not fight for victory. Victory has already been guaranteed. Victory has already been given. We do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. Look what Paul writes in Ephesians 6. I told you to turn there. Second, because I think this is so important. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is one of, or Ephesians is one of my favorite letters in all of scripture. Because if you study Ephesus, it was a multicultural, diverse port in the midst of the craziest Roman trade world of all time. It had competing cultures, competing ideologies, and it was a place that resembles America. And here is Paul planting a church and breathing life to the fringes and people are getting saved. And in that salvation, they're having to figure out, wait, I can't do what I used to do. I can't believe what I used to believe. I used to behave. I have to change. And so the entire letter is this encouragement and enforcement and teaching of how to act. And look what Paul writes in Ephesians 6, verse 10. He says, church, I want you to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. And then he goes on to explain why. Because we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. I'm gonna pause there. I'm gonna pause. Read this verse, this part of this verse one more time, then I'm gonna make a point. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of an unseen world. Church, if you haven't heard anything yet, I need you to hear this. My most practical piece of advice to you this morning is this. Brother and sister are never the enemy, even when they act that way. I'm gonna say it again, because I need you to get it. Our brother and sister are never the enemy, even when they act that way. Why? Because we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against. That means that sometimes as followers of Christ, we got to take it on the chin. We got to take it in the L column because we're not here to make a point. We're here to make a difference. And we're here to love people until they understand the truth. And it's really hard to love people when you're more victorious over them than actually them submitting to the victory that God has already won. And I just want to remind you, in a world in which everyone will be polarized to one side or the other, to one belief system or another, to one political 
Another, don't fall for it. Don't buy into the lie. Our brother and sister are never the enemy, even when we think they act that way. He goes on. Why are they not the enemy? Because our enemy is against evil rulers of an unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits. I hate this verse. In heavenly places. I hate that verse. Doesn't mean it's less true. What I hate is that we work our sanctuaries. We work so hard to protect our small groups. We work so hard to protect and and to to guard against the enemy. And and we have these prayer closets and these places that, that are our holy of holies, our safe places. But can I tell you, it's his kingdom. We don't like to admit that it's his kingdom. And scripture declares that there is evil ones in even the most heavenly places. And why this matters is because I think too often we read about the and we just read it as like, cute, I'll get dressed. And then we move on. And I don't think we understood that Paul wasn't saying, hey, you don't just put on the armor one time. No, 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 you're in a war. And there is someone who is out to kill and destroy. And so your job, church, is every morning you got to get up and you got to armor up. You got to put on that helmet of salvation and guard your ears and your eyes for where they take you and what you allow in your head. Wait, wait, pastor, I, I have to change? I I can't watch everything that I used to watch. I can't listen to to that cool music that the radio plays. I'm responsible to like turn off the radio. Yeah. And how you keep the enemy out of heavenly places is you put a guard up. You put on the breastplate of righteousness and you guard your heart and all the desires that flow out of it. You you cover your feet. Because scripture tells us, blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. And so you cover them because you want to make sure they're taking you to places that you decided to go. Not places that your will or your desire carried you. Reacting. And I love this one. You got, you got to pick up the sword of the spirit. Many of us, we've actually believed the lie of the signs, no weapons in our workplaces. No weapons in our car. No weapons in our schools. Now hear me, I'm not, I'm, that's good. But you know, the weapon you can't afford to leave at home is the sword of the spirit. You, you can't just read your Bible and be like, Ah, feel good. Okay, let's go to work and leave your weapon at home. No, you have to carry scripture. You. Scripture tells us that it, it cuts, it divides bone and marrow. It sorts out everything that needs to be sorted out. It divides everything that needs to be divided. And here's the thing. We think it's used to cut everyone else, but the truth is it just cuts us. It cuts every cancerous, 
demon infected bit of sin nature out of us where we can surrender it to the cross and walk in the victory that God gave us. See, many of us, we, we forget that this isn't just some suggestion, it's a command. He says, I need you to be strong. Put on the armor of God and wage war against an unseen enemy. What he's saying is the full armor of God is the only way to experience the victory we already possess. And see, many of us, we, we want the victory we want to put on the armor. We want the victory, but we don't want to do the work. We want the victory, but we don't want to change our behaviors. We want the victory, but we don't want to carry the word of God with us. We don't want to submit to it. We just want the victory. Unfortunately, church, scripture is not a buffet we like, and we leave the vegetables. The full armor of God is the only way to experience the victory that we already possess. And so my hope in this series is that you allow yourself to be continually strengthened by the power already made available to you and in your relationship with Christ. And here's why, because our struggle, our battle, our wrestling match to the death is not against physical or material adversaries, adversaries like people, circumstances, and organizations. You are not a victim. It's against the hierarchy of demonic forces spiritual realm. And that's why this series is called The Devil is in the Details. Because you know what we don't like? Details. We don't like the fine print. We don't like the little nuances. But can I tell you, the devil does his best work in the small things we think don't matter. Like how we start our day. How we clothe ourselves how we guard our hearts and our mind, how we guard where our feet carry us, how we put on the armor of God or how we neglect it. And I hope this series what it means to armor up, to put in the work with the daily disciplines, to not fall to the enemy's schemes, but to recognize that yes, the devil is in the details, but you know who else is there? God and his victory. So let's get into the details. Would you thank you for your word. Thank you for this message. Thank you for this series that we're about to embark. God, I pray that we would be reminded right now, we wouldn't have to boast about anything else, but we could boast about your cross because it is our victory. That Father, you defeated not just the cross, you defeated the enemy. You conquered the grave. And you rose out of the chaos of the deep and you set foot and you said, never again. And then you went and you prepared a place for us. And Father, you sit there at the right hand of God and you wait for us to call upon you, to cry out you for help. And Father, when you hear it, you respond fast. The glory of God and the kingdom of God. And so Father, I pray that we would learn to call on you more. Father, I also learned that we would study your word, that we would armor up each morning, that we would submit to the disciplines and the details of your word. That, Father, ultimately we would walk. We would experience your victory. We would be a part of your forcefully advancing kingdom. That, Father, yes, the enemy's cry is on earth as it is in hell. Father, may our cry be like yours. On earth as it is in heaven. May we go to war 
with the enemy. So we give you this message, we give you this word, and we give you our worship.